Okay, please stand and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's not the Bible. There we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So we pray that it would pierce our hearts tonight powerfully through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's turn now to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, 
after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. And you may be seated. Okay, this morning, we started by talking about what I said was the purpose of Paul's ministry, the end goal of his missionary efforts, which was, you remember, to bring about the obedience of faith. We talked about that's not just to make converts, but to make mature disciples, right? And teach them to do all that Christ has commanded. Well, tonight, I want to focus on that. Uh, I want to focus that idea a little bit more, like, a, like a, taking a magnifying glass to a beam of sunlight. That's the, the purpose of ministry. It's the purpose of missions. It's discipleship. Um, but if you imagine discipleship as a pyramid, what's the pinnacle of that pyramid? The smaller pyramid at the very top. We wanted to answer the question, why does the church exist? What are we here for, ultimately? Of course, you know the textbook answer, the catechism answer. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Question one of the catechism. And that's something that we're to do with our whole lives, right? Our whole selves. Again, it's it's discipleship, that big picture, the obedience of faith, Um. Our, our Benjamin is trying to learn the answer to question four. The first three are easy because they're really short. The fourth one's hard for a two-year-old. It's how can you glorify God? And it's by loving him and doing what he commands. Again, it's that big picture of submission to the lordship of Christ. That's the whole pyramid. If you want to know what's the pinnacle, what's the, the, the capstone Why, in the ultimate sense, does the church exist? Well, I would propose the answer to that question is 
worship. It is worship. The church exists to worship God. We exist. We were created to worship God both now and in eternity. And in fact, going back to the idea of missions from this morning, um, you may have heard, well, I know you've heard because I've said this more than once, uh, how John Piper is famously quoted as saying, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, um, what we're doing is we're seeking to extend the gospel so that people who right now today are not worshiping God through Christ will become worshipers of God. The goal is that the worship of God would increase. The rescue of sinners from hell is an important goal of missions. The growth in, in obedience and lives shaped according to the word of God is important. But all of that is serving the ultimate goal, the pinnacle of the pyramid, which is that we would together worship God now and in the age to come. It's the ultimate realization of that prayer, hallowed be thy name. That's what we want to see. We want to see God's worship increasing. Uh, It's not about our tribe, our affinity group, kind of getting bigger and stronger so we can feel better about ourselves. We want to see God worship not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because worship is our highest purpose in life. I think that Ezra chapter 3 is a great illustration of that primacy of worship for the people of God. And I'll try to show that to you from this chapter. But first, let me give you an outline. Number one will be the first priority, verses 1 through 6. Number two will be taking the lead, verses 7 through 9. And number three will be a bittersweet beginning, verses 10 to 13. So the first priority, taking the lead, and a bittersweet beginning. All right, let's go back to the Exodus. We talked about this last week. In the first Exodus, the original Exodus from Egypt, God famously tells Moses, you need to go to Pharaoh. You tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That's what everybody remembers, right? But he goes on. He gives a reason. Let my people go. Why? So that they can serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh was supposed to release them from slavery so that they could go and worship God. That was the purpose of the Exodus. It was worship. Well, last time, we saw from Ezra chapter 1 that the return from exile in Babylon slash Persia was, in some ways, in many ways, like a repeat of the first exodus. Except this time, it was Cyrus of Persia rather than Pharaoh of Egypt, who was the king. And Cyrus, unlike Pharaoh, was letting the people go willingly Do you remember that parallel we saw last time, like in Exodus, um, the people living around the returning exiles gave them all kinds of resources and treasure to be used in the rebuilding of the temple, just as the Egyptians gave the Israelites all kinds of resources and treasure to be used in the construction of the first tabernacle. Okay. All right, so what's the point here? The point is that the, the purpose of this return from exile is not just to get the people back into the promised land. It's to get them worshiping the Lord in the promised land. Just like the purpose of the Exodus. 
Again, it wasn't just to get Israel into the promised land of Canaan. It was to get them worshiping the Lord there. And they start worshiping the Lord in the wilderness before they ever get to the land. So in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, the returned exiles take the first step towards realizing that goal, towards reestablishing the worship of God in Jerusalem. And that first step is the construction of the altar. They built the altar of the God of Israel. The altar, you could think of as kind of the, the, the nexus, the crux of the temple. This is where um, so much of the, the action takes place in the temple. So many of the um, priestly functions revolve around the altar. I almost said the center. You think of the center as the Holy of Holies, right? Because that's the center, the central point of God's presence there, right? But uh, so that's why I'm using the, the term nexus or, or, or crux of the temple as the altar, uh, the things that are carried out there before the presence of God in his presence. Um, and once they had the altar, they could start carrying out then the core function of the temple as a place of sacrifice and through sacrifice of communion with God for the, uh, corporately. They needed the altar for a few reasons, really. Um, we could maybe list a few of them. They, they needed the altar for obedience, for atonement, and for protection. I'm going to unpack those a little bit. First, they needed the altar to pave the way for further obedience. So these people are coming back to the land, committed to doing what the Judah of a couple generations ago failed to do quite totally. They have come back committed to living in covenantal loyalty to the Lord. And, and for God's people, that loyalty to the covenant, loyalty to God, is expressed in obedience, in obedience to his law. And if you look at the law of God in the books of Moses, of course, there are a lot of commands there about sacrifices. And if you're going to offer the sacrifices God required, well, you're going to need the altar to do it on. And, and not just any altar. This is an important part of this, the particular altar they build. This is not a generic altar. This is a very special altar in a very special and specific place. So think about Judah before the exile. The problem with Judah before the exile was not that they weren't offering sacrifices. Um, the people before the exile were very religious people. And they even expended a lot of energy in religious activities, worshiping the Lord. It wasn't just false gods. Even when they weren't worshiping false gods, of course, that was a big problem, that form of idolatry. But even when they were worshiping the Lord, part of the problem for Judah is they had picked up from the people groups around them the bad habit of making new places of worship all around the countryside, on the hilltops, under these sacred trees, and so on. Worshiping the Lord, their God supposedly but using the forms and the locations of pagan worship, things that God had not commanded them uh, to do, ways that God had not said he ought to be worshipped. The high places and so on. This is what many of the kings are often rebuked for in Judah. So these um, returned exiles here are seeking to get off on the right foot by setting up just one altar. Not many altars all around the countryside. One altar they are setting up in the one place that the Lord has authorized. Notice verse 3, it specifically says they 
set up the altar in its place, right where it was before the temple was destroyed. These people are going to walk now in renewed obedience to God. That is going to involve, centrally, being very careful about the worship of God to make sure that they are worshiping him according to his word, that they're not adding on new practices, new altar locations of their own, like Judah had mistakenly done in the past. And then once they, once they have the altar then, they then can take the next step of carefully beginning to present to the Lord on the altar the offerings that his word describes. And that's exactly what they start doing Verse 2, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. This is a great illustration, I think, of the regulative principle, what we call the regulative principle of worship in practice. These people seeking to be fiercely committed to the word of God and be guided by it alone and how they are going to approach him and uh, conduct their worship corporately as a people. Second big reason why they need the altar right away is the need for atonement. It's the need for atonement. Atonement, of course, is a major part of the symbolism of the altar. This is one of the primary things that the altar is for. It is the place where God provides for the life of a substitute to take the place of his sinful people so that they can be spared the just judgment that their sin deserves because of that substitute taking their place. Building the altar is a form of obedience. You see, God's people need the altar also because they know that their obedience is fatally flawed and always will be as long as they're in this life. They know that they're disobedient. They know that they need forgiveness. They need a sacrifice for sins. That's another very compelling reason to set up this altar right away. There's a third reason for building this altar called protection. Um, Verse 3 is actually, it's a little bit challenging to understand what it's getting at. Um, Maybe wish that, we could wish that the author would maybe elaborate a little more, give us a little more more information. Um, It says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And, and again, the historian doesn't really spell out the connection exactly between that fear and the building of the altar. Why would fear of the peoples of the lands lead them to build the altar? And some say, well, they were afraid of these opponents, and that's why they built only the altar. That's why they didn't build the whole temple right away, uh, is one, what one commentator says. I'm not sure that's right. I think, again, it's a little uncertain, but I think the point here is more that Um, These people know that they're vulnerable. They know that they are few in number. And they know that the only one who can keep them safe is the Lord. And what the altar is, the altar is the place where they can gather to appeal to God for protection, for help in these fragile early days of rebuilding their life in the land. Uh, not that their offerings are some kind of like quid pro quo, so they're con- convincing God or paying God off to protect them. It's not like that's a pagan way of thinking about the gods and how to manipulate them and persuade them to do what we want. 
No, that's not what I'm talking about. But what it is, is this is a place for them to gather, to cry out to God, to humble themselves before Him, to acknowledge and um, demonstrate their dependence on Him, and to renew with Him that covenant relationship where they can express their loyalty to Him and He can reassure them of His loyalty to them, His faithfulness to them. Um, That's um, another reason building this altar was important. To sum it all up, I mean, we could really say the people building this altar, they are giving expression to that initial point I made at the very beginning. That worship is the first priority of the people of God. This must come first. And for all the same reasons. It's true for us today just as much as it's true for them. What do we need? We need to obey God. He's called us to worship Him, and our worship is a response of obedience. We need atonement. We do not repeat the atonement over and over, but in worship we are reminded, and that atonement is pronounced to us, that assurance of our forgiveness through Christ. This is where God applies to us through His Word, the truth and the gospel. And... um, that protection as well. It's in worship that we gather together to humble ourselves before God, to confess before Him our vulnerability, our weakness, our utter dependence upon Him both individually and corporately. Worship is our first priority. This is why the church exists. It's got to come first in our minds. Everything else flows from it. Um, Notice that it's not just the altar that is restored in these opening verses. It's also the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, God's law, should remember, gives instructions both about sacred space, we could say, and also sacred time. And as God's worship is being restored here, the people are giving attention to both sacred space and sacred time. Notice again how it's repeated. As it is written, according to the rule, they're, they're seeking to do this guided by the word of God, this Idea of God-centered biblical worship. That's not some like clever, trendy idea that, that we came up with for resurrection or for the OPC or that, the, or that the Protestant Reformation came up with. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture for restoring and for reforming God's worship. It's got to be with careful attention to God's Word. He is sovereign over His worship. Um, before we go on, I just want to stop here and think a little bit more about application. In what we believe to be biblical worship, we don't have an altar, right? I know there's one here. Um, I hope that you've noticed that we, we never use it because the, the architecture of this room um, is not the architecture of, of typical uh, uh, Reformed churches as, as maybe we'd set it up if, you know... Um, if we were starting from scratch. Um, We don't use the altar. Instead, you remember we we put a table down here when we have the Lord's Supper, for example, below the Word, the Word presiding over and interpreting the sacrament. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that we use a table instead of an altar. We understand the New Testament to teach that there is just one altar for the people of God. It's not the one in Jerusalem, though. It's the heavenly altar. 
the one in the heavenly holy of holies in the presence of God himself, which is what this Old Testament altar always symbolized all along. It was a copy on earth of that one heavenly altar. Now what has Christ done? Think about the book of Hebrews. What Christ has done is he has entered once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies by means of his own blood, Hebrews says. He ascended into heaven and presented to God his completed sacrifice for sins. On the cross, Jesus, of course, became the final sacrifice once and for all, for all of his people, for all time. And so now, instead of focusing our attention on an earthly altar where Christ was uh, foreshadowed, what we do is we lift up our hearts to heaven where Christ actually is, at God's right hand, where his sacrifice has been accepted, where his blood is covering our sins. Again, we also have that threefold need for obedience, for atonement, for protection. But we find those things in Christ himself, um, not in any altar that remains on earth. Uh, similarly, we don't observe these annual feasts anymore that you find in the ceremonial law, right? like the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is that? Well, it's because they also have been fulfilled in Christ. The need for them has passed away. But that doesn't mean that God's people today don't have a structure for sacred time. We do. We do still have sacred time that's given to us by the Lord, right? It's the Lord's day. It's the Sabbath. That weekly rhythm that that shapes our worship, that shapes our Christian life according to the word of God. This is part of our commitment to worship according to the word of God. Just like these people want to see in their hearts this commitment to worshiping the Lord as he's instructed, as it applies to the altar, as it applies to these rhythms of of time. And um, through this, think in Christ how this applies to us. Just just been doing. All right. So um, at this point, the altar has been built, and that's a start. Uh, things are on the right track. But of course, that's only a start. It's only a beginning. There's a lot more to be done. And so there's a need now for leadership to step up, to move the people forward in obedience towards what God would have them do next. And so, um, by God's grace, by his provision, he has arranged for there to be here not just the physical resources for the construction of the temple. He's also provided what we could call the human resources, right? So the Lord has provided among these returned exiles these leaders who are going to who are going to forge ahead, who are going to see this important work of temple building gets done. Now Zerubbabel is mentioned first, and remember from last time, he's the descendant of David, right? Um, he's the one who's of the the royal stock and ends up in the bloodline of Jesus. Um, of course, it was David, you may remember, uh, who made very lavish preparations for the building of the first temple. Uh, David didn't actually build the temple, but he laid a lot of the groundwork. He collected a lot of the supplies, a lot of the treasure, uh, made a lot of the arrangements with the surrounding kingdoms to, to provide the things that would be needed so that his son Solomon could actually build it. In fact, as one commentator points out, there are, there are echoes in verse 7 here of those preparations and, and the help that David and Solomon received from other countries 
uh, the cedar trees from Lebanon, for example, and, and so on. It's the same kind of pattern is being followed as in the construction of the first temple. And so once again, that kingly line is involved in the leadership of this temple rebuilding. But um, most of the leaders mentioned after Zerubbabel are not royalty. Most of them are Levites. And among the Levites, there's the special smaller group of the priests, the descendants of Aaron. Um, You think from the very beginning, in the Exodus, in the wilderness, it was the Levites, right? It was the Levites that God set apart to care for the day-to-day operations of the tabernacle, to uh, carry its components when Israel was wandering from place to place, and then to set up the tabernacle when Israel made camp. And so now this ancient family of servant leaders of the temple of the tabernacle and temple are they're once again taking up that task that god had given specially to them they're taking the lead to supervise the construction of this new house of god and by the way this is so often what god's people need this is um a a, a paradigm we find throughout the scriptures for a health among the people of god i think is summed up uh, so beautifully in that uh, song of deborah and barak in judges chapter 5 when it says that the leaders took the lead in Israel and that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. That's what it's like. There to be a, uh, that's a sign of health among God's people. When the leaders are taking the lead and the people are offering themselves willingly, all in an effort to pursue obedience to the word of God, culminating in his worship. That's a good segue into the last section, the idea of blessing the Lord um, for this uh, taking place in a healthy way. Um, Blessing the Lord is exactly what the people gather to do. When this foundation of the temple of the Lord has at last been laid, verse 10, The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. It says, And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. So it's this this special assembly uh, for worship, where the music and the singing are adorning and enriching this moment of celebration that the foundation has finally been completed for this new place where God is going to dwell. God is going to dwell there once again with his people. Think of that wonderful promise at the end of the book of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what the temple always pictured from the very beginning for God's people. And now that picture is being sort of redrawn for them after it had been so defaced in the time of captivity. And now they can see afresh this wonderful symbol of God with us, that Emmanuel reality. First given to God's people in the garden. Symbolized in the tabernacle. Expanded in the temple. Destroyed in the captivity. And now renewed, now reborn. But not everybody gathered there sees it quite that way. Not everybody's heart is filled with that same joy. 
There's a substantial contingent of these older men who still remember the Temple of Solomon, the temple before Nebuchadnezzar tore it down. These people can see the difference very vividly already. This, this new place, judging by this foundation, this new place is, is simply not going to measure up to the glory that we remember from the old temple. And so you get this very bittersweet, very, very poignant moment of very mixed emotions where the shout of joy is mingled with this loud weeping to the point that it's impossible to tell them apart. The emotions are running so strong, so high, of very different kinds among the people. So what should we think of these older Israelites and their sorrow? When we study Haggai and Zechariah later, this theme is going to come up again a couple of times. I don't want to spoil those books for us, but just give you a preview. Haggai chapter 2, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's kind of acknowledging that, that yes, this temple outwardly is much smaller and less glorious than the old one was. What Haggai does there is he points the people of God towards the future. He says, yes, I know it's as nothing in your eyes now. But he tells them, nevertheless, to be strong because, number one, God's Spirit is truly in their midst now as much as ever. And also because one day in the future, God is going to fill this house with glory, he says. And he's going to bring all the treasures of the nations into it. One day, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Similarly, in Zechariah chapter 4, there's that wonderful line about how whoever has despised the day of small things, whoever has despised the day of small things, the phrase Zechariah uses, that's, that's how these old-timers are, are experiencing this day. They're despising this day of small things. Uh, for the younger generation, it's a day of celebration. For them, it's a day with it where... where um, um, for, for the younger generation, they're, they're seeing the, the glory of this, this fresh start. But for the older generation, all they can see is the smallness of this new temple. But, Zechariah says, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice when it's completed. Uh, so Zechariah is looking forward to the, the temple project being done. And so in Haggai and Zechariah, there's, I, think, there's, I think there's an implicit warning um, against judging the temple's value too much by outward size outward grandness, or by comparing it with the old one, comparing structure to structure. Because what makes the temple glorious is not ultimately its size or its ornamentation. What makes the temple glorious is that God's presence is there, and that there God's people are able to gather to have covenant communion with him as their God. And yet, even as there's that implicit warning against that sort of comparison, I think Haggai and Zechariah are at the same time acknowledging what these older men are experiencing. 
And they are clearly indicating there is something more yet to come. This sense that this new temple is kind of falling short of expectations. It's not a sign that something is wrong. It means that something is not yet. It means that something is not yet. Yes, it's true. If you are feeling that there's got to be something more, then you're not wrong. Because indeed there is. It's true, this new temple was not going to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises of restoration. It was going to be just the beginning. It was a partial fulfillment. It was a true fulfillment. It was a step along the way. But this temple, too, was a foreshadowing of something bigger than itself yet to come. That's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 before we read the text. You and I, Paul says there in Ephesians, are being built into what? Into a temple. Paul describes the church as a temple. The foundation has been laid, he says, and you kind of wonder if he might have this uh, kind of two-stage process of temple building in the back of his mind. The, the foundation has been laid. The apostles and prophets are that foundation represented by the word of God that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. With Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, right? And now in Christ, Paul says, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, we are actually the ones who are being built together, he says, into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. That's what it means to be part of the church. That's what it means to have the full reality that these old-timers could sense was missing this day. In this this, this wonderful but still partial, provisional, temporary picture of God's presence. Yes, the dwelling place of God is with man all through the Scripture and all through the history of God's people. But neither Solomon's temple nor this one, neither one was the place where that hope, that expectation was, was ultimately going to come true. Where it is coming true in a higher and better way is right here. Right here in the church. It's among us. It's Christ dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit, building us up into a temple house for himself. See, what these men wept for the loss of, right now we get to rejoice in the possession of it. If only we can see that with the eyes of faith. The same eyes of faith that Haggai and Zechariah were calling these men to have, looking forward to the future. This is a bittersweet beginning, yes, but the bitterness of it for these believers adds to the sweetness of our worship on this side of Jesus coming on this side of the cross. Because, see, In Christ, God is with us. It's his name, right? Emmanuel. And that's not to say that life for us is not bittersweet as well. Perhaps we share more in common with these old-timers than I've um, suggested so far. I would say that you and I, too, are living in a time of bittersweet beginning. A time where the goodness of that 
God-with-us reality has begun, but is not yet complete. And so often mixed with the imperfection and the corruption and the weakness of living among God's people on this side of glory, in this still broken creation, with that sin still in, uh, in, indwelling us. And so like these people living at a bittersweet time, we too, living at a bittersweet time a little farther down the road of salvation history, we are also being called to look forward. And in our weeping not to lose hope, hope that what we now experience in part, we one day will experience more fully. And therefore, therefore we have great reason to worship God, to carry out our core function as the church, our highest purpose in life, to worship Him for this very great already not yet reality, that yes, the dwelling place with God is with man now, and one day it will be all the more and forever. On that day that Revelation speaks of, and teaches us to look forward to with all of our hearts, when he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we're not there yet. The foundation has been laid. That's good news for the people of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are uh, confident and hopeful tonight because you are the great temple-building God. Like we prayed earlier, if you don't build the house, they labor in vain, you build it. Unless you guard the city, the watchers stay awake in vain. Lord, we ask that you would continue your good work of building up your temple out of these living stones. So we feel like misshapen and unfit for such a purpose. And yet, Lord, we know that in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are shaping us, forming us, and and setting us next to one another in that temple structure, in your perfect plan, in a way that is going to make for our eternal good and for your eternal glory. What a thought, Lord. What a wisdom and power so beyond what we can understand. Lord, fill us with the joy of being part of that. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we, through our sin, intend to compromise that work. Lord, help us to see your worship as our highest goal. In Jesus' name, amen.